All right, welcome everyone. I'm Ron Jones. I'm a historical kinesiologist. I'm here in sunny Santa Barbara, California with Roderick Nash, Dr. Roderick Nash. And we're here to discuss uh, not only Dr. Nash's work, uh, the Dr. Nash in front of you, but also the work of his father, who was J. Brian Nash. And J. Brian Nash was uh, considered to be one of the top physical educators of the last 100 years. And he's quite a philosopher and a very fascinating person to study. So, um, if I may, uh, Rod, thanks for having me over today. I really appreciate Very it. Very happy to be here and uh, think about my father and uh, talk to you, Ron. Yes. And um, interestingly, when I was researching your dad and I realized who you were, I, I had your book on my shelf, The Wilderness American Mind, which is a, a legendary book from... Uh, the outdoor wilderness environmental uh, area research and study uh, published in 67 okay and so I'd like to talk a little bit about how uh, your father's work in leisure and recreation kind of set the stage for you growing up seeing him active in the outdoors and uh, you know advocating camping and things like that um, for some people, physical education today has a kind of a negative connotation because they think of just throwing the balls out and supervised recess or, or maybe uh, more of a sports-oriented program. But in your dad's era, physical education was quite comprehensive, and it included a, a large portion of uh, physical education in that era, meaning, you know, uh, turn of the century through the 40s, even into the 50s, involved outdoor recreation whether it be camping or hiking or, um, you know, manual art skills of, you know, how to use a knife and, uh, you know, cooking and things like that, uh, weaving and uh, using cordage and all kinds of canoeing and all those types of things. So I want to touch on that a little bit. So um, your dad, hit, I'll start just with his work ethic. It was... <laughs> He had a monumental amount of work that he published, uh, 13 books, and we, we were looking over that thesis and 150-plus articles. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yet he he also had the time to you know, be part of the wilderness. What do you remember about him growing up and just his lifestyle as a person? I was born rather late in his life. Right. Uh, it was the second family for him when he came to the East Coast from uh, the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. He left a uh, wife and child, my half-sister Janet, back there. She was 20 years older than I was. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was born in 1939, um, and J.B. Nash was um, 54 at the time. Mm. This is perhaps uh, uh, more common today, second families, than it was back then. Right. But um, it did condition the sorts of things we did. Sure. Because by the time I was, say, 15 years old, he was 70. <laughs> and so, a little bit different. Yeah, and yeah. so he wasn't backpacking uh, or going out there and hunting deer in the Sierra and some of those earlier photographs right. that we have of him doing that kind of thing. Sure. But um, he certainly left me with a appreciation for getting out of the urban environment. He was at New York University when I was born. Mm -hmm. He walked to work, which meant that 
he lived and I lived on Manhattan Island. Wow. Down near Washington Square. Uh, it's a pretty bad place to grow up as a kid. It's mm. really a concrete jungle. There are no stars in New York. Right. Because you don't see them <laughs> at night. And uh, the snow turns dark in about two hours. You know, I always thought snow was white, mm -hmm. but it turned dark in about two hours. And uh, I did the best I could, but um, my mother and father endeavored to get me out to boys' camp. Mm -hmm. They, of course, were great believers in the camping idea. Got me out to boys' camp, both in New Hampshire and later in Arizona, mm -hmm. and showed me that there was another world than that of New York subways the and, urban environment. and buses and, and horrible traffic. Um, but I did live for 18 years on Manhattan Island, downtown, uh, near Greenwich Village, on the edge of Greenwich Village, Washington Square, 40 East 10th Street, <laughs> one of the uh, many numbered streets in New York, 40 East 10th Street. Yeah. Well, let's talk about camping a minute because it was a big part of your father's career and he was very passionate about it. And as we record this program in January of 2020, there is a growing trend um, for people much younger than us to get back out in the outdoors and start camping. And I think that is a very refreshing sign that there's hope for us when you see people starting to become aware of the values of the wilderness and getting outside and those those uh, learning lessons. I think your dad referred to it as kind of a laboratory of, you know, where people figure it out. Um, he was part of the Oakland Recreation, Parks and Recreation System with uh, Dr. Heatherton um, in uh, 1917, I think he went there. And Oakland became uh, basically the leader in the United States for parks and recreation. And there was a huge camping development there. So can you mention the, and when he was at New York University later, it was a Camp Sabago, is that how you pronounce Sebago. it? Sebago. Sebago, right. That was a, a camp uh, where the graduate students went for six weeks in the summer. So it was immersion type of thing very rudimentary uh, housing, and people came from all over the world to go to this physical education camp that your father basically uh, put together. And they ran that camp into the early 1960s, I think, is when they stopped doing it. So, and I think you had some experience with that. So what, can you touch on that camp a little bit, and what it meant to your father? Because I know that was one of the highlights of his career. I believe when J.B. Nash came back from, came back east, born in uh, Ohio, mm -hmm. 1886, and uh, when he came, and he went to California coast, when he came back from the Oakland Experience, Pacific Grove, to New York, it was with the understanding that he would be the point person to develop a graduate student facility near New York City, mm -hmm. but out in what was called Bear Mountain Harriman State Park, about an hour from New York City, but out in pretty wild country. Okay. Um, and on a lake there, uh, he did that. And it's safe to say, as you imply, that a whole generation of leaders in the field of health, physical education, recreation, mm -hmm. Um, went through that camp or were aware of that camp. It was a real mecca 
for that evolving discipline. Mm -hmm. He was, um, J.B. Nash was um, careful, I think, to not make me a camp brat, mm -hmm. to just hang out around the camp. So I was shipped off to boys camp in a different location, but I would come back occasionally, and during the winter, when he would go up to the camp, wasn't in session in the winter, right. he would go up to the camp, and that was a big outlet that I had from New York City, mm -hmm. to go with him up to the camp, we'd build a fire and a wood stove, we'd walk around, and to me it was just a glorious release from the intensity of New York City. Right. So right. I have great memories of being up there with him in those early days. Mm. Uh, snow in the ground, following deer tracks, mm -hmm. uh, doing the kind of stuff that city kids don't get to do. Right. And I believe those events shaped my interest in wild country and wilderness preservation mm -hmm. in national parks and led on to a decision to write my own dissertation about the evolving American attitude toward wilderness. Mm -hmm. How would it change from one of hatred and fear to one of love and appreciation? Mm -hmm. One of the biggest revolutions in the history of ideas about nature occurred uh, right in this country. And we became leaders of the world in such things as national parks and 1964 wilderness preservation system. Mm -hmm. Coincidentally, I finished my PhD thesis, University of Wisconsin, in 1964, same year the Wilderness Act was passed. Wow. And while I think that Wilderness and the American Mind, which was the book that emerged from that work, while I think it is a good book, I think it also is a very lucky book in that I published it at a time right. when the wave of interest in those subjects was cresting. Thank you, Rachel Carson. Thank you, Paul Ehrlich. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Aldo Leopold, who emerged in the 1960s as a great uh, persona. Mm -hmm. And so I was uh, positioned well to ride that crest of interest mm. and to be uh, able to have that book take a role in, say, keeping dams out of the Grand Canyon, which it did, that, that decision being made in... 1968. Right. And preserve that uh, area for millions of people globally to go enjoy in a more natural state. Um, it, your, your book is fascinating and it really changed how I thought about the wilderness and the outdoors and I, I highly recommend it. What was fascinating to me about studying the camp from New York University is that your, your, your father's philosophy of teaching, uh, he he was very multicultural before that was in vogue. He, he believed in um, educating everyone and everyone should have access to the outdoors and, and the, the healthy way of life. And what I read was that because there were so many different cultures and religions present at the camp, it became just this really global uh, petri dish of learning where you got to spend so much time with somebody that was different than you that you really began to understand them better and, and it facilitated just more uh, humanity. Um, and I want to touch on this because in the 40s, there were African-American students going up there 
and they were housed in the same cabins by gender. They weren't separated by a wall or a, you know, this is the cabin for the blacks, this is a cabin for the whites. And I just thought uh, that was so ahead of the curve, you know. And can you touch on his philosophy just to, he, he had a good uh, a read on how important it was for everyone to be included. He did have that uh, that attitude, and uh, uh, taught me from a from a very early age that uh, everyone has the potential to develop a bright spot or a skill level uh, and to improve their quality of life. And I think it's important in understanding that to go back to the early twentieth century when his ideas were shaped. We remember he was born in 1886. He went to uh, a, a liberal progressive college in Ohio called Oberlin College, graduating in 1911. Mm -hmm. And at that time, the opportunities of, of um, all but the very rich in America were severely limited and were focused primarily on work, mm -hmm. on dawn to dusk work. J.B. Nash came out of a farm family in Ohio. He was the first member of his family to go to college. Mm. They were used to getting up early and working late. If you talk to them about creative use of leisure time right. or about fitness or about physical education, they would just laugh at you. Right. These were no people time for that. These were people who we call country strong. Mm -hmm. They weren't health club strong. It was the they were country yeah. strong. Functional training before it was in vogue, they call it that. Yes. Indeed it was. And uh, uh, so what uh, J.B. Nash recognized right away was that with um, changing civilization, uh, and boy did it change between 1886 and his death in 1965. Oh, radically. You yes. can, he, I, it seems to me it would, be, it would be hard to find another block of 80 years in mm -hmm. the history of our species right. where there were such drastic changes. Mm -hmm. One of them was that we had more and more people living in cities, divorced from the outdoors. Right. 1920 is usually the, the number that's pulled out of the hat to discuss when American, more Americans lived in urban environments than did in rural environments. Mm -hmm. In other words, that balance point, mm -hmm. about 1920. People had been on the farm, they'd been in small towns. But after 1920, it was the bigger cities, and that trend has, of course, increased. So my father came into the scene at a time when work was God, when the heroes of his culture People like um, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Ford mm -hmm. were into work. Right. And you showed up early and you went home and you went to sleep and you got up the next morning. The idea of having a balanced or fulfilled life or to do something that brought you joy and happiness as opposed to just an income. Off the assembly line, right. Those things weren't priorities right. at that time. Mm -hmm. And so it was, I think, in California that J.B. Nash began to say, as we have more leisure in a society, we've got to use that leisure wisely. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got to understand the meaning of recreation, not just as a break or a relief, but as a positive asset 
for an individual life. Right. It, this leads us right into the classical definition of leisure, which your father basically worked on and wrote on and spoke on, because he was a, a very sought-after public speaker as well for his whole career. And, and leisure today is kind of like uh, amusement-oriented or entertainment-oriented. But the classical idea of leisure, going back to ancient Greece, and, and according to people like your father, was that it should be educational and it should be uplifting to culture. And um, that would tie in going in the outdoors, you know, learning from nature. Uh, it could involve, you know, reading and, and library-type things, but so often it was also related to the manual arts, and that was an area when I was over here last time that we spent a few minutes discussing because your father highlighted the importance in leisure activities of using one's hands and how important that was to develop the brain. And what I've read uh, in my historical studies is that the, the thoughts of yesteryear were that you develop the brain through the muscles and especially the use of the hands. It's not the brain that develops the muscles. And then it's kind of the thought today, but in, in that area it was so important to um, get the activity, the types of activity with the hands and, and do all that. Can you touch on that for a moment? Because he was, he was big on the hand quality and use of the hands. I remember him talking about the opposable thumb, <laughs> how the opposable thumb allowed homo sapiens to do things mm -hmm. uh, with their hands that other life forms with paws and say five claws over right. the hoof right. couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And so um, we, saw, we saw the uh, uh, tendency of the hand and skills and decorative arts because I think even 100,000 or more years ago, someone who did a pot or made a chipstone mm -hmm. uh, could take pride and indeed joy in the shape of it. Right. Gee, that's perfect. That really worked out. Mm -hmm. And I believe it was that kind of bright spot, that kind of aha moment, or as J.B. Nash called it, teachable moment. Mm -hmm. It's one of the first to use that term, by right. the way. Right, he coined that phrase, I yes. think he coined that phrase, teachable moment. Right. Those were huge moments in, in someone's evolution as a balanced person. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a matter of getting up, working, going to bed. It was, do I have time to create something mm -hmm. here, to make a beautiful bow, to fashion a arrowhead, to weave a cloth, right. or maybe it was to eventually uh, write something down, uh, do some pictographs or petroglyphs on a rock wall mm -hmm. to make the drawings that we admire from Lascaux Caves and other places. I think this was the hand, as you say, right. kind of leading the way right. toward an evolution of the brain. Um, that touches on a couple things we should tease out. One is that the, the idea was bring art into utility. And so that's something when I give my presentations today out of history, I try to highlight that for people. And it, it's kind of an aha moment for them because if we go back to a tribal type community where you were weaving the basket, it, it had a utility to it. Yes, it's going to hold a food source or water, but there was also an art to it. And there was a joy, a deeper joy in that that was at a spiritual level that wasn't 
necessarily there in the assembly line when we were going through the Industrial Revolution. So it left that that soul void in people, and that's why the leisure activities became so critically important. And uh, this is a message I'm trying to explain to the younger people today, that their, their leisure activities can help restore that spiritual balance that might be missing in their job if, if they're just maybe doing IT programming or data entry or assembly line work. And in fact, at one point, I don't know how your father spoke about this, but um, I think he did mention this specifically, if I recall, that the hobbies were considered essential just to keeping one's mental uh, faculties about them, right? It wasn't optional. It was that important to have a hobby, and ideally a hand-oriented hobby, too. The concept that I can remember him dwelling on a lot was that um, athletics were important, Mm-hmm. But they shouldn't really drive the whole process. Right. And I think he would pull back in horror from some of the directions that intercollegiate, excuse me, that intercollegiate and interscholastic athletics have gone. Mm-hmm. I think his attitude was very much participate. Don't be a spectator. Right. Don't um, hesitate to try to be the best that you can be. Mm-hmm. That might not mean a four-minute mile. Sure. That might mean an eight-minute mile. Mm-hmm. But it might be the best you've done. It the concept be. of personal best or a personal record right. that you could be proud of. Athletics for everyone. Teach a kid how to play tennis mm-hmm. who wasn't a millionaire's son or daughter. Right. Have a public tennis court. The hand, the eye. Maybe a Serena or Venus Williams will come out of a situation like that, as they certainly did. Sure. He was big on active participation, and in, 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 uh, the spectatoritis term was also coined by him in that uh, people ended up writing all kinds of volumes of work based on the spectatoritis where you've got the people watching life go on or the people in the game of life participating actively, which is where the higher value is. That's where the learning takes place. It's where the benefits are. But your father and others of his era wrote about uh, essentially, it was uh, your dad called it dust in the mouth. <laughs> That's how much value it had just to sit around and watch everybody else do something. Sure. You know, at least at a uh, like a sports spectator level. Sure. You know, I remember one thing uh, uh, that came through growing up with him. We use the term play. Mm-hmm. We use the term playgrounds. And I can remember J.B. Nash saying, it's not just play. Mm-hmm. It's real serious. Right. People learn through play. Children learn through play. Mm-hmm. And adults can learn through play. Yes. But you got to play. Right. You got to get in the game. Right. you got to get in the game. If you just watch or play a game on a computer. Right. Of course, J.B. Nash didn't know computers the way we have them today, but I think he would be somewhat horrified right. about the amount of time people spend on computer games mm-hmm. as opposed to getting out and actually doing something. Right. And it gets into, he, he wrote later on in his uh, life about, well, he wrote his whole life about this, but especially later on, um, the importance of rhythmic activities. And so if you're sitting and like, Right now, there's not a lot of rhythm in, in our body's emotion because we're sitting down and talking. 
So the idea is to have those rhythmic activities that that help bring out the best in your health, your overall health. So long extended periods, whether it's in school or at a computer at the workplace or playing a video game, um, you don't get that rhythmic uh, unwinding of tension that facilitates um, something else that came out of his era, the best energy reserve at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. People seem very, very drained because they're not getting the right type of rhythmic movement. Mm -hmm. And that was something that uh, he and others wrote about, very important. Of course, if you go outside and you're hiking and walking and chopping wood and there's, there's so much rhythmic activity in those. And if you want to be efficient, right? Bicycles too, swimming too. Yes, yes. Talk about sustained rhythmic activity. This might open the door for us to talk about stroke glide, and I haven't heard anyone else uh, explain it like he did, but he talked about the stroke glide relationship in, in life and in movement, and he cited that the heart has a three to five ratio of work to rest. And so like three parts work, five parts rest. And uh, what's happened today is we've kind of inverted that. You know, we're doing like way more work and hardly any rest because we can maybe argue that uh, playing some kind of digital entertainment isn't the type of restful activity that your brain really needs. Um, so did he, did he talk a, to you about stroke glide relationships and that type of thing? Frankly, I, I, can't, I can't remember that. Hi, uh, I can't remember that, um, that conversation. Remember, I was a kid. Right. And uh, uh, pretty much still in high school when he was retiring right. from yeah. New York University. So yeah. um, I, can, I can remember some of his faculty, teachers at the camp, mm -hmm. at New York University camp, like Sebago, New York, mm -hmm. um, working with me with some gymnastic moves. Rhythmic type uh, movements? Rhythmic, okay. rhythmic type movements. There was a dance green there, and uh, dance was an important interest of J.B. Nash, mm -hmm. and people learning to dance and to, to perfect the glide, uh, stroke glide motions mm -hmm. in the dance, mm -hmm. and to, um, I, I remember very clearly, he, in his Catholic small c attitude, said, dance isn't just for women. Mm -hmm. Dance is for everyone. He admired the Indians of the Southwest who danced, and the mm -hmm. men danced in mm -hmm. ceremonial dances. And mm -hmm. he, he brought that back to the Navajo rugs, to the right. pots that, that I've so fortunately inherited from him. Mm -hmm. um, I think dance was one of those activities that he recognized as not only a good use of leisure time, not only a play opportunity, but a way as a kinesiologist, you would know, Ron, mm -hmm. to better your life. Sure. And dance, I mean, as you know, goes back into the tribal history and how people communicated. Way back. Yeah. Way back. And and um, to to embrace the dancing by men in a Anglo-European culture right. was a, a step up. We had the Martha Grahams, we had mm -hmm. the, the women uh, who, who were 
dancers, but um, I can remember my father encouraging all the students at New York University camp to participate in dance. Mm -hmm. Get down there, try it, be the best you can be. Right. You may not become a Martha Graham, but you can be better than you were, and right. you can take pride in, in that. You're actively participating. Finding that bright spot, mm -hmm. the teachable moment. Oh, that's how you do it. Which is a, we can get into the aesthetics and movement of the beauty and, and, and that too, because that's such a big part of uh, health today. And in, in, the, in the current fitness industry, there's a lot of emphasis on maybe exercise science or pseudoscience or mechanics, but not, we've lost our way with the art. So as I, at this point in my life and career, as I go out and talk, I'm talking way more about the art now, the art of movement, which comes into the rhythmic part of it. Uh, did a presentation for educational kinesiologists last summer, and I spent a lot of time bringing in your work, uh, the work of your father, and talking about the rhythm of movement and the art of movement. and And these are people that work a lot with children with learning disabilities and and also adults. So I think that message resonated with them, and I think there is a there is a shift, you know, as 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 you know, things ebb and flow, and um, was doing a presentation a few years ago up in Sacramento and the global marketing director took me out in the parking lot afterwards and she said uh, the smartest corporations in the country are looking to history for the answers right now mm. because of this the, the global situation of, of what's happening they're, they're looking back and one of the things that I enjoy about your father and in, in reading his uh, writings is that he was quite a historian he oftentimes cited not just people in literature, but um, you know some Greek philosophers and things like that. He had a because he had such a, a depth of history. He was a very visionary person in terms of predicting the future and what we needed to pay attention to. He's left us quite a trail guide, as I like to say, mm -hmm. um, on what's important and what we need to consider. And I guess from what I've read when he spoke. He asked a lot of questions of people, and he got them to really think critically about what they believed in and what, how they wanted to move forward. He was a great speaker. That's what great, I've read. Yes. Great motivational speaker. Here was a whole generation, Ron. You've got to understand, I think you do understand, but a whole generation of people who were just dipping their toes into this field of, what are we going to do beyond the three R's? What are we right. going to do beyond the basic education? We're going to have so much leisure, right. as in spare time. How are we going to fill it? Are we going to fill it creatively? Are we going to fill it like the ancient people mm -hmm. uh, could fill it? Or are we going to become spectators and let, in a sense, other people fill our lives for us? Right. So here was a whole generation that he could inspire who were looking for a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Philosopher Absolutely. of recreation, philosophy of leisure and recreation, looking for someone uh, to draw on the past, as you say, mm -hmm. to draw on poetry, to draw on literature. One of his favorite poets was Rudyard Kipling, who talked about going beyond the ranges, something hidden beyond the ranges, go and find it, have a passion right. for finding something beyond the ranges. Mm -hmm. You don't know quite what it'd be. Maybe you won't know until you get there. Right. But, but dare to look for it. And so 
he was a master at weaving in um, ancient wisdom, uh, poetry, uh, diverse ideas on human nature and, and concepts of well-balanced and successful lives. And I think far more than just teaching people how to construct playground equipment or how to coach a defensive line in football, mm -hmm. he gave them a sense of what they were doing as vitally important to civilization, right? to, to the, the general population. And uh, as I look back on his body of work, I just don't see anything before that that measures those sorts of things, measures up in those kinds of fields. And thanks to someone like you, uh, you're carrying on that concern at a time when it's probably needed more than it even was in J.B. Nash's era. I actually think that's true. I, I think we need it more now than when he was speaking on it. Remember, he died in 1965. Right. It's quite a ways of time ago. Right. Half century ago. Right. He and was... He so an era, an era, as we all know, before a lot of things such as uh, computer mm -hmm. technology mm -hmm. and um, thousands of television channels, literally thousands of television channels. It was like three to five, maybe when he about three to five. Yeah. I did. I grew up. <laughs> when I grew up, I had no television. Right. And uh, um, so there was um, there was a frontier, if you will, of need right. to be addressed by people who define education as broadly as physical educators do. Right. He was at the right place at the right time, much as you were when you published your book. I was very and lucky. Was I was very in lucky in nineteen sixty four. We sort of passed the torch right right there right. in those in those two years. Right. There was a big shift in PE around also around nineteen twenty that went away from the formalized gymnastics of postural hygiene type of teaching to it, part of it was they went more into sports, but what I've learned by talking to you personally and also studying your father is that it also moved more into the social-emotional health post-1920 with physical education and recreation, outdoor education. Um, and that, that's very important today, as we know, with some of the things going on with our young people. So the, the context clues also about the leisure for people that might not understand that totally is that in the Industrial Revolution, because of all the inventions revolving around machinery, um, people had more time because the machine was doing the work for them. And so there was a, a massive amount of discussion in the 20s and 30s about what are we going to do with all this extra time. And, and the government was involved. People like your father were front and center writing and speaking on this, but many others as well. And there was a real concern that we wouldn't be able to handle it because Americans, when they came over to settle, there was never any time for leisure, as your father had on the farm. On the Ohio farm. And, and so we'd never been taught how to use it. And so this is why your dad was critical to this message, because he knew history enough to go beyond the settling of America back to Greece and bring that message forward that to, to be sustainable as a nation... It's really governed by how you spend your leisure time. This is what's been written not only by your father, but, but many other people for generations. So 
as I look around now and I watch how people are spending leisure time, I'd say yes, the message is even more important today, for sure. And along the way, uh, I believe, Ron, we have to recognize the impact of J.B. Nash on policy as in respect to cities and corporations who are now involved more and more in welfare training mm -hmm. and cities and park programs and playground programs and outdoor education programs, um, schools, communities, businesses that are unlike, say, the Henry Fords and the Rockefellers, not just go home, come to work, go home, mm -hmm. but we're interested in making happy people. The well-being of the employees. The well-being of the employees. We're, right. we're, we're interested in trying to make lives happy. Lives weren't happy for human beings for a long time. Mm -hmm. When you go back into the Middle Ages and you look at the serfs and you go back before that and you look at the hierarchies, um, lives weren't too happy. Yeah, for the working person, right? For the working person, for the average dawn to dusk. Right. Dawn to dusk person. And um, suddenly in the progressive era, we call that the early part of the 20th century, 1900s, suddenly there was this concern that um, was highlighted by people like John Muir, right? A great fan of uh, you are a great fan of John Muir, as I am too. Uh, he died in 1914. And your father got to hear him speak. Got to hear him speak live. Got to hear him speak live. And uh, John Muir was one of those people who said, "Go out there and climb the mountains. Get their good tidings. Get right. out of those cities. If you can't afford it, maybe the city should help you." get out for a time in the Sierra or a time in the Adirondacks. And maybe it should promote things like public recreation on national forests, trails like the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Divide Trail, and so on. Um, Which is what your dad did with Oakland, because after he heard Muir speak, he basically helped Oakland develop the greatest parks and rec program in the country. Climb the mountains and get their good tidings. They and had camps that people would ship off sure. to for the summer and, sure. and then the Change weekends. Changed their lives. Changed their lives. They loved it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that camping program uh, is one that I think needs, uh, needs to still be with us. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it needs to be more than just a couple afternoons of the sixth graders going to an environmental ed school someplace but there need to be there needs to be some way to get people out into longer journeys mm -hmm. such as the kinds I run in the Grand Canyon and have all my life 20-day trips don't see a car don't see a house right. rowing 280 miles now you're the you told me last time you're the oldest person to run the Grand Canyon solo yeah, that's not quite right okay. uh, but I may be the oldest person to to row a um, a boat, not using a motor, oh, okay. but to row a boat, a hard boat, right. in this case, a dory uh, through the Grand Canyon. Okay. Um, that's not to say that some older people haven't set at the oars and run a few rapids, sure, but just last sure. September, at age 80, I rode the entire canyon, 280 <laughs> miles. That's amazing. Uh, into the wind, into wow. the, out of the eddies, over the flat water, down the big rapids. And how long did that take? 20 days. 20 days. That can change your life. Wow. So, so I'm still, I'm still uh, very hopeful that uh, even if people don't have 20 days, they can have enough time to 
visit a park, a wilderness area. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just for an afternoon, maybe it's just for a weekend. Mm -hmm. But uh, close up the cell phone, shut down the computer, um, walk out there uh, as John Muir advised and get the good tidings. Absolutely. You're in Oakland, Oak Oakland, we could, I could write a whole book just on what he did in Oakland because it was so critical to, basically it's still influencing us today in many ways, but he created a worksite recreation program there where he took all this programming and it did involve the outdoors to worksites in uh, businesses and had people involved in that way. So he, he was all over the place. He was in the camping, he was in the worksite, you know, what we could call wellness today. Wellness. Uh, and that was a big part of my career for 15 years. I did corporate wellness. And so it's inspiring to think that even, you know, 100 years ago, basically, he, he was on top of that. It was 100 years ago. It was 100 years ago they See? were doing it, you See? know. You're right. It, it's the same thing. It was just uh, might have been better, you know. <laughs> so, well, that's, uh, he was also part of, um, during the war, he wrote a, pretty important book called Building Morale, and I found out through reading a thesis uh, that Dr. Jessup wrote on your father that he was part of the rehabilitation efforts coming out of World War II as well. And he mainly wrote from a kind of a philosophy, sociology standpoint, but he could get extremely technical in the exercise physiology and the facility management uh, parts of running a physical education recreation program. but. But if I think of him just from a global sense, he he was the uh, the recreation philosopher with the the torch lighting the way for us. And the the mechanical parts, I think uh, we can kind of figure that out. But if we don't have the philosophy behind us, we're lost. And as he would have said, we're 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 without a rudder, you know, <laughs> because we don't have that guide. Yeah. To be a hopeful traveler was one of his favorite expressions, and uh, to to um, be grateful for the uh, communities, the schools, sometimes the corporations who can instill that hope right. and te make that teachable moment in people. I want to call uh, attention as we wrap this up to um, uh, one of his books, uh, called uh, Recreation Pertinent Readings, Guideposts to the Future. Right. And um, in this book, which, which includes uh, quotes from the great, the great uh, thinkers in the field of um, happiness mm -hmm. and balance, uh, he was kind enough to include an essay by me. Nice. I was uh, about 24 at the time, 23, and writing Wilderness in the American Mind. Mm -hmm. And here I find on page 234, um, a Recreation and Wilderness, A Glance Through American History by Roderick Nash. And uh, he writes, uh, my father writes that I was at Dartmouth College teaching mm -hmm. and that I had written this dissertation, Wilderness and the American Mind. And... Um, here is a little, little essay about uh, why some of our attitudes toward wilderness changed in the 19th century from one of hatred and fear and conquest the unknown, to right. one of yeah. conquest to one of preservation, protection, and um, celebration. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, in this in this sense, our 
our careers and lives and thought sort of came together. Here he is right at the end of his life putting together this book, and I'm just at the beginning of my career right. uh, contributing an essay on outdoors. And it's, it's a wonderful way to kind of wrap up our conversation today and, and just to underscore as a current credential physical education health teacher to underscore the importance of connecting to the outdoors even if it's just at the neighborhood park um, because I think the green education of children uh, what they can learn from the forest or the beach or you know the mountains or the desert is so critically important today and it's it's not something that can be duplicated um, in 3D artificial intelligence I think the real thing is uh, is the real thing. So thanks so much for joining me today to talk about not only your career, but the career of J. Brian Nash and uh, the legacy that the Nash family has left on not just our country, but our planet. Thank you. Thank you, Ron.